Well, I sort of struggled over a title. This is the introductory message for a series that we're going to be doing uh, on the local church over the next few months, and we'll do that by iteration. That is, we will kind of come and pick up a subject and then have some uh, interaction and discussion and, and thought, and then uh, in a few weeks we'll come back to another topic. So Tom's going to be doing a series on Proverbs, and this will sort of be interwoven uh, with that. So I came up with a title. I haven't asked my fellow elders, and I'll call it a title for this message. And I call it the CBC Beautification Project. And I think you will see what I mean by that as we uh, as we proceed. Many years ago, when I was a teenager, uh, I was standing with, with uh, three other guys uh, at my folks' place on the lake. And at that time, they were running it as a very small resort. And... Uh, a girl that we all knew was driving past us on her way down to the lake to go for a swim. And one of my good friends said voluntarily, what a, and I won't even tell you the word because you won't know what it means these days. It was not uh, immoral, but it was not complimentary. It, it was basically saying, this is a woman in whom I would have no interest what came next is what really surprised me. The other man standing beside me said, that's my sister. Oops. I think that's something we need to bear in mind as we approach this subject. We live in a day when the church is under criticism. And I want to tell you, the church isn't always beautiful. The church has warts if you would. But I would be very careful about what I said or thought because in our midst is the one who says, that's my bride. This is serious business, this business of the church. And we need to come soberly understanding how important the church is to our Lord Jesus. And therefore, how important this church beautification process really is. So I want to, in this message, address three basic questions. Question one, what's the problem we're seeking to solve? Why this series? Secondly, what's the process by which we plan to address the problem? And then, how important is the effort? And really what I'm saying is, how important is the church? Those are critical questions, and I hope we will answer them properly this morning. So let's talk about the problems that exist in the church. And let's start with what I call the visible problems. Those are the warts that everybody sees. If you look in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll find lots of warts on the face, as it were, of the church. Here are some examples. Chapter 1, divisions. I'm a Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I am of Christ. Divisions. Unaddressed immorality, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The church is somehow silent about a man who is living with his father's wife, and even more than that, they're even proud of their toleration of it. Chapter 6, lawsuits. Christians going to court with one another. Should have been a shame. It was not. 
And then what I call unacceptable conduct in worship. And I'm speaking primarily of that whole matter of meats offered to idols, of heathen sacrificial services, and of the overflow of that, as I see it, in the meeting of the church in chapter 11, where there is indulgence, impropriety, and in fact it is so serious that there is sickness and death that comes at the hand of our Lord because of it. So we see 1 Corinthians is an example of visible problems. Well, I think we see visible problems here as well. And I'll just mention one of them. One of the things that's been observed by our elders and probably a lot more people is the fact that when young people go away, they often don't come back. When they go off to college, often they will go elsewhere. And we've asked ourselves, is, are we doing something wrong? Is there something we need to learn from that? I think that's really not as unique to us as we might have thought. And so as we have thought about that and considered it, we realize this is the general problem that's faced in most churches. Why is it that young people don't return when they leave? But I think it's even more than that. It may be a symptomatic problem of something that's very serious in our culture And when you talk about millennials, I think that becomes perhaps even uh, more so. But we have to ask ourselves, is that a problem that reveals something about us, a wart, as it were, on the face of CBC that perhaps we need to deal with? But beyond that, it isn't just a matter of people leaving and going to another church. The reality is they are leaving church altogether. And that's where this book, uh, The Post-Church Christian, has some interesting things to say. It is written by a father and a son. The father is a, a more of an old coot like me, and he writes from that traditional, I've been there for many years, perspective. His son is a millennial, and he represents uh, that new perspective in many ways that is distressing and alarming to those of us who are older, and certainly it raises a lot of questions. So there is a general problem, I think, a serious problem in the church today, and that is people who have actually given up on church. How do you do that? Then there are the invisible problems, and and by that I mean those which may not be apparent to us something that others might see in us, but that we may not necessarily see in ourselves. When you think about uh, biblical examples, I guess I think of the church of Ephesus as described in Revelation chapter 2. Remember, our Lord says, there are many good things about you, but you have left your first love. That was something they did not realize about themselves. It was not apparent to them. Something that had probably happened gradually, but here they were in a very different state than they were at the beginning. Well, that may be true of us as well. In fact, I'm sure it's true of every church that there are problems that we do not necessarily see. And so how do we discover them? Well, I would suggest that we do a couple of things. One, we compare the present with the past. That's very interesting. When you look at Revelation chapter 2, God says to the church at Ephesus, look at yourself now compared to what you were in the beginning. 
Here's this somewhat high standard, not the highest, and here's where you are now. Maybe when we look at what we were and what we are, we'll see a a contrast, and that may ring some bells and bring that to our attention. The other is what I call comparing reality, our reality, with the biblical ideal. Now, I've been thinking about this, and I've got Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 12, for you to think about. This has to do with the subject of divorce. And remember the question is asked, in effect, can a man divorce his wife for any cause at all? The generally accepted answer to that, and even by the disciples, was, well, sure. And Jesus goes back and he says, that's not the way it started. And so he upholds the ideal, one man with one woman for life. That's the ideal. Even though we live in a world where I believe the Bible grants divorce under very limited conditions, we never should cease to uphold the ideal. And I think when we get our eyes off the ideal, we begin to see our reality as the norm. That's what had happened in Jesus' day. Everybody had begun to see the exceptions as the rule. And they had forgotten, what's the ideal? We need to uphold the ideal. And one of the purposes of this study, I believe, is to go back to the Scriptures and ask ourselves, what is the ideal? It's almost like what happens when you go to a a doctor for your annual physical. I don't suppose any of us really like that. But the doctor has in those blood tests, for instance, he has norms. You know how those work. And you got certain range. And if you're in there, you're okay. And if you're not, he's going to talk to you. Sometimes we need to go back for our annual checkup, church-wise, and ask ourselves, are we in range? <laughs> are we in the range of what God has for us as a church? Or have we somehow unwittingly uh, moved below the bar? Now, take a look at this. By the way, I know this is sort of stick version of PowerPoint. I'm sorry, folks. This is all the artistic bones that I have in my body. It's all I got. But I want you to think about this in terms of the ideal versus reality. And it seems to me that people become disillusioned when they see too wide a gap between the ideal and the reality. The problem is some people's grasp of the ideal is distorted. They may not have the proper view of the ideal, and therefore their frustrations are even greater. For leadership, I think we need to say to ourselves as we look at the ideal, where do we fall short and what are the areas we need to address? What needs priority, whether it's in teaching or changing programs or whatever? How do we implement things Or, in some sense, how do we perform mercy killing on some things if they really do not move us toward the ideal from where we are? So elders need to look at things the way they are. They need to compare them for the way things ought to be. And they ask themselves, how can we narrow the gap? But it also works for the congregation. I think one of the real problems that happens with church dissatisfaction is people have a level of expectation that is just not real and not biblical. I was thinking of, of the hit of my history church-wise. In the early days at Believer's Chapel, people wanted the teaching of the Word of God. They didn't care that we didn't have a music program, and we didn't. 
We may have had a hymn, but we didn't have a music program. And people flocked because that's what they wanted. As the years passed, some people said to themselves, well, you know, it would really be nice to have some fellowship too. It would be nice to know who's sitting next to me in that pew listening to that great teaching. Not bad. And recently, it's been worship. Well, I would hope that we as a church were a full-service church where you didn't have to have one at the expense of the other. But some churches now, people are disappointed if they're in the Starbucks out in the lobby, right? Maybe a roller rink, bowling alley, a few other things, shopping mall out there. Our expectations for church, folks, are just not real. And certainly not around the world. And they may not be biblical. And while our expectations may be too high, our sense of commitment and obligation is too low. And so you you have a a lowered sense of commitment, a higher sense of expectation, and it's no wonder that people are hitting the doors. We've got to address that, and I think we do it from the Scriptures. What's the process by which we'll address the problem? Well, what I, I gained this from... Tim Keller's book, Center Church. I like it a lot. He says this. Too many people come to our church and they see our success and they ask us, what did you do to be so successful? We want to do the same thing. One of the things they do, get this, they have classical music on Sunday morning. Now, how would that hit you in some churches? Don't hand out earplugs, I assume, and don't do some of the things that are done elsewhere. He says, listen, what we've done is we've tried to discern the core of our belief. What is it we believe about God and what is it we believe about the church that's central and unchanging? We want to know that, but we want to apply it in the light of what's the culture in which we live. So how do we appropriately express who we are and who we should be and what we should do in the light of that culture? Now, I have to confess, I thought that was great, but he didn't go far enough. So if you'll go to the next slide, we'll take a look. See, I told you it wasn't so hot. (laughs) That's all I could do for PowerPoint. But it seems to me that what you do is you start with your core beliefs. Those are unchanging. They're universal. They don't change with time or culture or geography. Here are the things that are absolutely true, principles and precepts in particular, related to the church, but not limited to that. Now, when you look back to the left, then I think, is that right? (laughs) You look back at tradition. You know the old saying, we've always done it that way before. When you start, start with the core beliefs, you ask yourself, are the things that we've always done before really biblical? Or are they, as I've said before, barnacles on the bottom of our boat? They got there but they really don't have any justification for being there. If there are things that are traditional with us that are not true to the core, then they may have to go. I think that's one way of looking at it. That's mine. The other is look forward. I believe that we're seeing that the reality, not only for the universal church, but for us in America, is persecution is coming. And so as we look forward to persecution, folks, there are certain things that we ought to be thinking about that. How does the exercise of our principles of church 
and theology? How do those things direct us in a way that will make us survivable and sustainable in days when it may be illegal to be in this building, in days when it may be illegal to preach this message? What do we do to sustain ourselves in that environment? Upward, I point to the commands. And this is really critical in my mind. Take this one example. Jesus gave us the command in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, to make disciples. I believe that your core beliefs have everything to do with how well you will do that. One of my concerns in an organization that I'm involved in is that there are many missionaries starting churches who come from Asia. But Asia's model of leadership is dictatorship. And if you read your Old Testament, you know that when a man comes to power as king, he kills off all the competition, right? In other words, Barnabases don't like Paul's. They don't want to be replaced. They don't want to be superseded. And so they press down the development of leadership because that's a threat to their system. So pluralistic leadership and pluralistic ministry says, I want to raise people above me. I want to raise up replacements. That carries out the Great Commission for discipleship and missions and so on. So commands as they relate to core beliefs and then culture. Sometimes you have to confront it. Sometimes... You can adapt to it in a way that is not compromising of your principles. But even when you choose to confront it, there are ways to do it, and there are probably ways that you should not. And our core beliefs ought to direct us in that process. Okay, so I've talked about the process in general. Let's talk about it in particular with the next slide. The process is, how do you like this alliteration? Oh my goodness, what's happened to me? Instruction. I almost said iterative instruction because it will be that. Pulpit teaching on subjects pertaining to the church, and that will be interspersed, as I said, with another series, the series on Proverbs that Tom will be doing. Interaction. We want this body to engage with us in this study and in the consideration of what things need to change and what things do not. What God wants us to do as a result of this study. And we see that as an elective period that would follow the teaching uh, so that that can be discussed. Ministry groups would discuss it as well. And there could also be leadership meetings and, and other things. But really wrestling with the issues in terms of what do we do? What should we do? What do we do? And after sufficient time, implementation, and that is, do programs need to come or go? Do we have too many programs? Whatever. We need to begin to implement that in a way that is consistent with what we believe God is having us do. Now, if you go to that next slide, if you haven't, it's the one on uh, instruction, and it basically lists some of the topics that we'll be talking about. Uh, the authority of God's word, evangelism, discipleship, worship, the meeting of the church, cheerful giving, 
Male and female distinctions, spiritual gifts, leadership by plurality. Now, the order of those may change. Maybe even the uh, some might be added or whatever. That will take us through about January uh, in our present uh, mode of thinking. So, the problem is we need an annual checkup, as it were, as to how we're doing as a church. And the way we plan to do that is by making a study of the scriptures to look at our core beliefs, but relating those to our past, our traditions, relating those to the future in terms of persecution, relating those to commands that are given to us and to the culture in which we've been placed to live. And that instruction will be taking place and that interaction, God willing, as we proceed uh, the rest of this year. Now the question is, So why is this all so important? People who have left the church have concluded the church is not really that important. Is that really a valid conclusion? I had, believe me, I had a grocery list that would knock your socks off. I'd have to have multiple PowerPoints if I went throughout the scriptures. But I decided to do something different. And that is, just take the subject of the church in one book. And I chose the book of Ephesians. What does the book of Ephesians say to us about the importance of the church and therefore the importance of our intent and desire to do it right? Well, look at Ephesians chapter 1. You've looked at that. This is really the 30,000-foot view. But I want you to trace the theme of the church through the book of Ephesians. And I have to confess, I've been thinking about a paraphrase, and, and no Bible translation would use my heading. But if, in effect, chapter 1 is, it's not about you, stupid. When we come to, to the whole issue of salvation, do you, do you see how quickly it always revolves around me? I hate that song that says, if... I were the only one to believe in him. He would have died for me. I mean, isn't that just saying me, 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 not holy, holy, holy. It's all about me. Well, it is about you. I'm not denying the reality that he came to save us. And we have all the spiritual blessings that are outlined. But is that the ultimate goal? Is that where this thing leads? Is just me? And my individualistic little spiritual life and happiness and all of that, is that what it's about? That's not what he says. He says, it's all accomplished in him. It's about Jesus. He did it, not me. We'll see that in chapter 2. It's in him that we have these things. And then he says, the ultimate goal is the glory of God. Is that not right? Over and over again, he says, it's to the praise of his glory. It's to glorify Him. Jesus saved me to glorify Himself. Not to glorify me in that self-centered kind of way of thinking. And the ultimate exaltation of our Lord, if you look at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, the ultimate culmination is when Christ becomes the head of the body, And it manifests all of his fullness. Where do you see the fullness of who Christ is? The church. 
That's what it says. And we have been blessed to become a part of it. But if we are a part of the church, then we are a part of the process of God demonstrating and declaring His glory. That's our mission. So it's the church is, is the earthly display of the greatness, grace, and glory that we have in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, you remember in, in those first uh, ten verses, uh, talking about what we once were, and now by his grace he saved us, not by works that we have done, and so on. Uh, and we've been saved, verse 10, unto good works. He says, we've been saved by faith in Christ, thus becoming participants and benefactors of, uh, beneficiaries, I should say, of his saving work and glorification. Notice in verse 7, it says that this is eternal. Look at that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7. In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What Christ has done to save us is to his eternal glory and praise. We see that in Revelation, do we not? People praise him in heaven forever. For what he has done in time. And then he says in verses 11 through 22. That the saving work of Christ has not only reconciled sinners who are at war with God. Verses 1 through 10. But it has reconciled two groups who are as far apart from each other as is humanly possible. Jews and Gentiles. The middle wall has been torn down. They are brought together into one new man. And that new man is called the church. He has brought this together. He has reconciled together. And friends, this is mission impossible. Think about the level of difficulty one of, uh, one of the theories that's popular in church growth is homogeneous groupings. Let's have people so they can all be together with people who are young like them or old like them. Uh, let's have people in the same socioeconomic level because then we're much more comfortable with each other. God takes the most diverse people, racially, social economics, status, slaves, free, Jews, Gentiles, male, female. He takes all that diversity and he says, I have torn the walls down. And I am bringing them together into one new man, the church. It is a display of the glory and the power of God that he not only reconciles wicked sinners to himself, he reconciles wicked sinners to each other in spite of the huge barrier and gap that once existed. And he ends that by saying... This one new entity, this new man, this church is the dwelling place of God. That's pretty sober stuff. Pretty serious business. Ephesians chapter 3. Here's where Paul talks about the whole area of the mystery. He described this process by which God has taken Jews and Gentiles and brought them together into one new, new entity, the church. Now he says... This was a mystery. It was hinted at. It was uh, talked about in, in, in general terms, but nobody really understood from the Old Testament. There was this new entity that was coming called the church. 
That mystery has now been revealed because the finished work of Christ, which reconciles men together, that has been done. And he says the apostles are those who announce that, who declare that mystery. And by the way, that mystery is the basis for marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm getting there, but I'm just saying that's where it all comes from. And the thing that's interesting is while in chapter 2 he says the praise and the glory is eternal related to the saving work of Jesus. Now he says it is not just this worldly. It is not just declaring to human beings who God is. This thing is actually being worked out as the celestial powers look down upon us. And they say to themselves, oh my goodness, look at the racial diversity in here. Yes! What has God done? God glorifies himself as the celestial powers look down and see this miracle that has been played out called the church. It's to his eternal, celestial, and earthly glory. So he ends the chapter, chapter 3, by praying that somehow the saints would begin to grasp the fullness of what he's been saying about the great work that God has done in Christ in creating the church. Ephesians chapter 4. He says the church, I, I'm, I'm flipping the verses in the sense I'm going to go from 7 down to 16 first. He says the church functions and matures and ministers best when all of the members exercise their spiritual gifts and carry out their function within the church. Here again is that diversity now put to work. Everyone has their particular place, their particular task, their particular gifting. As those work together, then God works in the world in a way that brings glory to himself through the church. But here's the necessity. You can only do that if you have unity, right? You can only do that if you work together. All those diverse people, hey, it's not as easy as it sounds. And sometimes that diversity begins to rub on some edges of our life. That's by design. But that unity must be maintained. I have to tell you that when I, when I look at the scriptures as a whole, I, I love the way God raises the level of difficulty. You know, remember with Gideon? Yeah, too many, too many. Let's, let's take them down. You know, so you go face this huge army with 300 guys. Well, the reality is only God can do that. And the reality is when he does it, the 300 guys aren't out on the stage taking bows for the greatness of their work. They know it's God. So God has raised the level of difficulty. I mean, look at how Israel started. Jacob's sons are willing to sell one another into slavery and murder one another if necessary. Oh, what great unity we've got there. God brings them together. But that's only a foreshadowing of what he's doing in the church, bringing that diversity together and working through a united body as they carry out their diverse and different roles and gifts. Ephesians chapter 5. Now you've got... This uh, And I'm really working from 22 down to 33, mainly. And, and that is, now you come to this section on the church. I didn't read that section so that husbands can go home or poke their wife in the ribs and say, see, you know. What this is saying is very significant as it relates to the church. 
It's saying the relationship between Christ and his church is the pattern for marriage. For women, that works itself out in the realm of submission. For men, it works itself out in the, in the, in the relationship of sacrificial service. And so he says men are to model Christ and his love for the church by sacrificing themselves for their wives and giving themselves for the, the, the purification of their wife. And you notice that it talks not just about the salvation of us and the, and the origin of the church, but the purification of the church. So that's where I come to the church beautification project. The reality is the church isn't what it's going to be, ultimately. Is it? The church ought to be moving, it ought to be growing up, and when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, this growth that he's talking about is not individual growth, it is growth as a body. And that body grows up together into maturity and into what Christ wants it to be. When Christ did his wonderful work on the cross of Calvary, he not only brought about the birth of this bride, but he brought about and made provision for the beautification of that bride, and it is still underway. If we walk out that door and say, I'm done with church, then you're disagreeing with God, because he's not done. Now, if you say the church is ugly... You probably are agreeing with God. It's not so pretty in certain ways, but it will be. And that's what the church beautification project is all about. Seeking to bring about that which beautifies the bride for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, here's the question. If we are saved to be conformed to the image of Christ... And Christ's great passion is the church. Then what does that say about our passion for the church? I mean, if a husband is supposed to live out Christ's love for the church, then how can we not love the church? The the, the marriage relationship is just a, a reflection of the reality. And the reality is... We should, if we are like Christ, we should love the church and we should say, I'm willing to make the sacrifices he calls upon me to make for the good and the growth of the church. So here's the challenge. God has, in a way, put all of his marbles in one basket. Is that not really true in in, in a certain way of thinking when you look at Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3? He's put his marbles, as it were, into the basket of the church. And therefore, he's very interested in what happens in the church. He's very interested in its growth. And we should be as well. We should be interested in the flaws that exist within us that we don't see, as well as those which we do. There may even be flaws which the world doesn't see, which we need to address. Here's one of the beautiful things for Christians. Do you think God's not going to finish what he started? Remember Philippians chapter 1? In in effect, transliterated, transparaphrased, whatever. He says, God finishes what he starts. Well, he started the church. He's the head of the church. He's going to finish the job. And the question is not whether he's in the project. The question is whether we are with him. 
in what matters most. Now, think about, think back to uh, Exodus chapter 32. Here's this motley crew of people called Israelites. And, and you know, Moses is off site for a little while, and here they are with a golden calf and carrying on like crazy. And God says to Moses, I'm done. I'm done. And Moses says, well, not really. Because you made a promise. You made a commitment. And therefore, Moses appeals to God on the basis of who God is and on what God has promised to do. Now, if that's true of Moses with this nasty group of people called Israel, then it's true of the church, that nasty group of people (laughs) called the church. And can we not believe that God is at work? Can we not believe that God wants what is best for His church? Can we not pray with boldness that God does in this church and in His church universal what He has set out to do? And can we not know that if we are engaged in doing that, that He is with us in that project? So there's a challenge for believers to get on board. Because God is going somewhere with His church. And we ought to be going with Him. Secondly, for unchristians, I chose that word, by the way, based on that book, Unchristian. That's another one that you ought to take a look at. I'm just starting it. But it's about how the world views the church. Boy, they really think we got warts. I mean, they think we need plastic surgery. Um, And maybe in some instances they're right. But I have to say to you, go back to Jesus and look what he's done. He has invited every unbeliever, every unchristian, to acknowledge their sin, to trust in Jesus. And it is the ultimate beautification process. What Christ is doing in his church, Christ does in the lives of individuals. He takes dirty, messy, nasty uh, people and he cleanses them through the shed blood of Jesus Jesus bore the penalty and as it was said this morning in the worship time he bore the shame that we deserve he, de- he took the punishment that we deserve and bore that himself on the cross of Calvary and he says to everyone who would believe in him that they may be cleansed of their sins and made beautiful before God because Jesus is beautiful. Trust in him. May God be with us as we begin this process, the CBC Beautification Project. Father, thank you for what you are doing in this world through your church. We acknowledge it's not always a pretty picture. Would you work in us, help us to see what the church ought to be and ought to do. Help us to have the courage to do that, whether it's popular or not. And may we do it to the glory that belongs to you through our Lord Jesus. Amen.